Before we start, let's pray. I want to ask for God to help us, help me. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful, Lord, that we can be together. We're so thankful for your word, Lord. We'd just be making stuff up in our foolishness. But you've spoken to us. Uh, In these pages of scripture, we have a trustworthy authority for who you are, who we are, what you've done for us. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be with us now richly as we dig into your inspired word. And I want to ask you, Lord, that you'd help me to teach this faithfully and clearly. And Lord, we all ask you that you would speak to us personally, that our minds would be full of understanding of your word and what it's saying, what your intention is for us, and that it would hit our hearts. We would believe you. We would follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, the 83, in AD 37, just a few years after Jesus was crucified, a man named Josephus was born. How many of you have heard of Josephus? Okay, good. You have to be a little bit of a Christian nerd to know who that is. So we have some here at this church. Uh, Josephus is an important character, uh, mainly because many scholars say he is the major historical source for understanding Jewish history in the mid-first and second centuries. He's a giant for understanding the history of that time. And you need to understand, Josephus Josephus was not a Christian. Um, And yet, in one of his works, he wrote this. Josephus said, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. Did you hear that? So why am I telling you this? Well, here's an historical account outside the biblical record, written by someone who's not a Christian, who would receive no benefit for claiming to be a Christian, and yet what's he reporting about Jesus? What did Jesus do? He says, Jesus did miracles. There was a man named Jesus who did miracles. Now, why would Josephus, not a Christian, doesn't care about Jesus, why would he write in his history that Jesus did miracles? Well, let's not make this too complicated. It's because Jesus did miracles. (laughs) He did miracles. Loads of miracles. And we're working through the Gospel of Mark. This is also a historical account. Mark was an associate of the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, So it's kind of fun to think Josephus was maybe in his 20s when Mark was written. And the Gospel of Mark is stuffed with accounts of Jesus doing miracles, isn't it? Especially chapters 1 to 9. In fact, Jesus did so many miracles, sometimes Mark just has to like sum them up in bulk. So look at Mark 6, 56. Wherever Jesus came in villages, cities, or countryside... They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. 
You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll see sometimes entire villages were healed by Jesus. The gospel writers say, we can't even hope to tell you everything that he did. We don't have the space and the time. However, as much as Mark even will give you these bulk statements, Jesus healed everybody. Several times Mark will hone in, won't he, on one unique interaction Jesus will have with a specific person. And that's the case with our passage this morning, isn't it? Jesus interacts with and heals this one man we're told about, this blind beggar. So what have we seen so far? Well, I'm just telling you, Jesus did miracles, okay? So many miracles. Sometimes the attention will focus in on, on one person, one miracle. So here's the big question for us today. We heard the scripture read. We should all be asking, so what? What does it have to do with me? What am I supposed to do with this account Mark has given us of Jesus healing this man? Because at first glance, the story almost seems to get in the way, doesn't it? If you're tracking with the flow of the story, the attention of the moment is on how Jesus is the Christ, God's king, and he's heading into Jerusalem for the great feast of Passover. Masses of people are heading to Jerusalem already to go to the feast. And then um, the energy is humongous over Jesus coming into the city as the promised king. What's he going to do? Some people hope he's going to lead an attack on Rome. What's going to happen when the king comes? And then this blind beggar seems like a distraction to the story. It was to them. It almost is to us. Why does Mark almost stuff this little story in right here? of Jesus' interaction with this, this one man, this blind beggar. Well, I want to think about that with you a little bit. I want to think with you about the purpose of Jesus' miracles, especially in the Gospel of Mark. And I think there's two things we need to see. Number one, Jesus' miracles prove his message. They prove his message. Mark's first concern from the very beginning has been to convince you of who Jesus is, right? Remember how Mark started, Mark 1.1? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's an enormous claim, isn't it? This is the promised king who's going to judge the world, save his people, renew all things, and he's the eternal Son of God. That's an enormous claim. Claim. What kind of evidence would you need to believe a claim like that about someone? Well, how about we start with scads and scads of incredible restorative miracles? Paralytics walking, deaf hearing, lepers cleansed, blind seeing, all with crowds of witnesses watching. Wouldn't those stand as some decent evidence for who Jesus is? So Mark has told you, now he shows you, look, look, look. And so the evidence are supposed to convince you it's true. That's who Jesus is. He really can and will judge and renew the world. We really will stand before him and answer for how we've lived our lives. Well, now it starts to get personal. Here's part of what the miracles have to do with you. They, proved, they, they should prove to you who Jesus is, and that means we should begin to take him pretty seriously. <laughs> He's not just another religious teacher out there. Not just another philosopher. No, he's the son of God. We're going to answer to him. 
Miracles prove the message. But, but here's another thing the miracles do, especially as we've seen this. We've seen this in Mark. The miracles become like a, a teaching tool or a parable for displaying what Jesus is doing in the moment. So just think about this with me. Uh, Mark, what, Mark's main concern is that you would see who Jesus is, but then immediately after that, he wants you to see how to respond to Jesus. So, so what you, how should you respond to him? So in chapters 9 to 10, we've been, we've been working through this lately, Jesus tells his disciples over and over again what he came to do, right? We saw it with great clarity last week. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die on a cross in our place as our substitute. That's what he came to do. His death was not, oh, I was trying to do this, and then unfortunately it led to my death. No, no, no. He came to die as a ransom for sinners. That's why he came. He's been very clear. And now we saw, I mean, with great awe and wonder, as he's, he knows as he goes to Jerusalem, it's going to lead to his cross, and, and where is he marching to? Right into Jerusalem. He's heading straight towards the cross. And, and, and as he's going on his way, he's calling people to follow him. And that's really the picture of discipleship, right? That's a picture of what it means to be a Christian. You follow Jesus. You listen to his teaching. You're with him. You obey him. You're devoted to him. You follow Jesus. Chapter 10, then, as we're putting this all together, it's been full of different responses to Jesus. He's calling people to follow him. The question is, how are you going to respond to Jesus? Follow me, Jesus says. The, the first people we meet are the Pharisees. What's their response to Jesus? Well, they're so self-righteous. They hate Jesus. All they want to do is ruin him. The Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is. They don't see it. And then we met the rich young ruler. Do you remember? Uh, he says he wants eternal life, but when push comes to shove, he denies Jesus. He won't follow him because he loves his money more than anything else. The rich man is blind to the worth of Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the response of e even Jesus' own disciples. He tells them of the cross, and then immediately in their pride, do you remember what they asked for? Hey, can we, can we sit on thrones in your kingdom? Uh, Pride, they're asking for power and comfort. Now, we know the disciples will come around, but even they, they're blind to what Jesus is doing. And so we get to the end of chapter 10, we should be asking this question. Does anybody see? Is anyone going to follow Jesus? And here's the great irony. As we sum up chapter 10, guess who it is who sees? It's the blind beggar. He's the one who sees. So the miracles prove the message. The miracles also open up. They teach you what Jesus is doing. They teach you of what Jesus is doing. He's opening the eyes of a blind beggar, the only one who sees. And Jesus is going to say to him, your faith has made you well. So, so back to that big question. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, as we, as we take all this into account, what Mark's been doing, we realize this account with this man, this is a portrait of discipleship. Because here in this chapter, kind of the model disciple, the example of someone who truly 
believes in Jesus Christ is the blind beggar. He's the example. And so then, what's the first thing we're supposed to do from an example? Well, we learn. We learn. Because as we look at this man, we're going to see, I call it, five marks of real faith. Five aspects of real faith. Jesus praises his faith. This is legit faith. And so we learn five things about true faith, saving faith in Jesus. We learn from the example. But number two, once you learn from the example, we, we look at this blind beggar. Who do we look at next? We have to look at ourselves. You have to measure yourself. You have to ask the uncomfortable question. Do I see Jesus or am I blind like the Pharisees, the rich young ruler? Am, am I a disciple? Do I have faith? That's what we want to ask ourselves as we walk through these. We want to see the example and measure ourselves. And Lord willing, even if you, even if you look at yourself and say, I don't think I do. Well, maybe, maybe God will give you faith even right now. Save us right now. Five marks of genuine faith. First one we're going to see, verses 46 to 47. We'll follow along in the story. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. They came to Jericho. This is a a very normal thing from anyone uh, where Jesus was geographically. Jericho is a a, a core city along the way. It would be absolutely normal to stop here, to rest here. There's an oasis. It's it's on the way to Jericho. You still got a ways to go. I think it's like 20 miles, but it's on the way. And of course, we see, you know, crowds of people are coming anyway due to the Passover, but especially they're interested in Jesus. So crowds of people we see are following Jesus. And just off to the side, you hear reference to a blind beggar. And, you know, if you are going to be a blind beggar, actually the city of Jericho, right before Passover... That's a hot spot. That's a sweet spot to be in because you got, theoretically, you got a lot of tourists going into Passover at Jerusalem, and maybe, hopefully, they feel a little guilty, you know? And uh, maybe they'll give some money to a blind beggar on the way because if you're blind in the first century, the best thing you can do, the only thing you can do is beg. I've been privileged enough to travel to certain spots in the world, and you see things like this, it'll break your heart. Not a lot of support structures in some places in the world. And when you're blind, you sit there by the road, you hope no one takes advantage of you, and you hope somebody gives you something, and that's all you have. And that's got to be a picture of this man's situation. But the beggar, and and the Gospel of Luke tells us that the crowd kind of swelling through as Jesus comes, it's big enough for him to, he hears a difference. You can imagine him sitting there. He just, there's, there's more noise. There's more footsteps. He hears a difference. He actually asks, what's going on? And somebody says, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So what does this blind beggar start doing? Did you see? What does he start doing? He starts yelling. 
Jesus, son of David. He starts yelling. He just keeps yelling. He won't stop. And what does he call Jesus? Did you hear it? Jesus, what does he say? Son of David. If you know your Bibles, you should be a little bit amazed. This blind man already sees far more than most people do. We've been reading through Mark. You realize how, how long it took to the disciples to get to the, oh, you're the Christ. It took a long time. And this blind beggar, that, you guys, that phrase, son of David, that's the same thing as saying Christ. You're the promised king. You're the Messiah. Just the tiniest bit of background, right? David was the king of Israel who had a heart for God. He loved God. He wanted God's glory. Not at all perfectly, but genuinely. God made a promise to David, which echoes through the rest of Scripture. 2 Samuel 7, if you want to read it. One of David's sons, right, will be the ultimate king, God's king, who will reign over everything forever, save his people, renew the world. David's son. This blind beggar sees that. He knows that. He knows who Jesus is. He's God's promised king. Fulfilling all the promises of the scriptures. That's amazing. But there's more. Look at what the blind uh, beggar asked for. Oh, sorry. Before, before we get there. One more thing about what the blind beggar sees about Jesus. Look down at verse 51. The blind man says to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Um, I'm, I'm not a Greek expert, but I think this translation could have treated us a little better. Every commentator I read draws out the uniqueness of the Greek word behind what we read as rabbi. Rabuni, you don't need to know how to pronounce it. I don't even, I'm not even sure I pronounced it correctly. The, the important point is to see that it's a term of devotion and worship. So you could probably translate this as saying, my Lord and my master. Doesn't that sound a little different? My Lord and my master. So, so what I'm trying to draw to you is, what does this man see about Jesus? He sees who he is as the Christ, but he also sees that Jesus is worthy of his worship, and he wants to give it to him. First thing you need to see then, genuine faith, real faith, sees who Jesus is and that he's worthy of your worship. Do you see Jesus like that? He's, he's what all the scriptures are about. He's Lord, King, Savior, Treasure. He's worthy of your worship. If you see Jesus like that, praise God. It's a picture of genuine faith. Not only that, though, he doesn't just say, Jesus, Son of David, what's up? No. He says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. So he sees who Jesus is, but he also sees his own need and that Jesus is the only one who can meet that need. He sees his own need and that Jesus is the only one who can meet that need. Have mercy on me. What does the blind beggar have to offer Jesus as Jesus walks by? Doesn't have anything to offer him. He can't cut any deals with Jesus. Now compare him with the rich young ruler. 
You remember? Compare him with the rich young ruler. What does the rich young ruler have to offer? Well, he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. <laughs> he's religious, respected, successful. Do you remember? He has things to offer. Do you remember how he came to Jesus? Hey, you're a good teacher. And then he says, oh, all those commands, I've kept those from my youth. Right? Hey, Jesus, I'm a good person, but you could give me some advice. That's how he came to Jesus. Now think of the blind beggar. Hopeless, helpless. He knows he has nothing to offer, but he says to Jesus, I know who you are, and I need your mercy. I'm in need. I need your mercy. You have to ask yourself right here, which one are you? Are you more like the rich young ruler who thinks you're pretty good on your own? You might be open to some advice from Jesus, but you'll stay in charge of your life. Or are you more like the blind beggar who is desperate for mercy and only Jesus can give you what you need? Faith looks like the blind beggar. Jesus made this really clear. This is such an important issue for us. Look at Mark 10, 15. Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, what does that mean to receive it like a child? We thought about this a little bit. Sometimes people want to say, well, children are innocent and cute. That really breaks down when you try to apply that, right? To to inherit the kingdom of God, you have to be innocent and cute. No offense, but that disqualified, I'm just looking at you here. That's not what it means. Children know their need. And all the parents are like, I hear you. Children know their need. They're very free about their need. I need you. Jesus says if you don't come with that humble, desperate need for him, you won't inherit the kingdom. Because that's part of real faith. You see who Jesus is, you see your need, and and you realize only he can meet your need, especially when it comes to our sin. How much do you need Jesus when it comes to your sin? Our consciences sometimes accuse us. You know, many, many times we go through our days kind of numb. We compare ourselves to the worst people we know. I'm a decently nice person. But every once in a while, right, I think you know this, your conscience will accuse you, will remind you of those things. And, you, and you'll know your guilt before God. And still we're not actually awake to our guilt before God. I'm thinking of the bad sins in my life, the really bad ones, the ones I don't know you, want you to know about, but all the... The other sins, well, everybody does those. Guess what? Before a holy God, those are still bad sins. Jesus actually says in one place, you could be held accountable just for every word you said. Friends, I want you to know that if all I got judged for on my own was the words I said, I would go to hell. I have need, not just for an advisor, a good teacher, an example. I need a savior. I need somebody to pay the price for me. 
Only Jesus can meet that need. Only Jesus can make me right before God. Only Jesus can purchase my forgiveness. Here's the first point on faith. Faith sees who Jesus is, your own need, and how only Jesus can meet that need. Can you see? Second thing about genuine faith. We see this in verse 48. So you imagine this blind beggar just yelling over and over again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think we can all imagine that would be awkward. Just people continually yelling, that's awkward. Yelling the same thing at one person, that's awkward. The crowds walking by. Plus in their whole kind of understanding at that time and place, a blind person, well, he's probably blind because he's a sinner. So he's kind of garbage. He's off to the side. Just be qu- You know, here's what they tell What do they basically tell him? Shut up. Shut up. Stop. Stop yelling. And, and what does the blind beggar do, even though the crowd tells him to shut up? He keeps yelling. He keeps yelling. Now, I am not asking you to all stand up and yell. Please actually don't. Uh, and that wouldn't actually apply this passage very well anyway. Because... What's the point? Listen, the blind beggar knows his need, and in his pl- time and place, his, the answer to what he needs is walking right by. And so he has got to encounter Jesus right here and right now, and quite frankly, he doesn't care if the crowd doesn't like that. He is desperate for Jesus despite the opposition of the crowd. That's the point. You know, many times in the Gospel of Mark, the crowd kind of serves as this obstacle from someone getting to Jesus. Think about that in our lives. How does the crowd, your family, your friends, your cultural moment, your place of work, society's expectations, a relationship, how does that keep you from living out a desperate following for, of Jesus. I think we know that's a real thing in our lives. You know, maybe I have a desire to be devoted to Jesus, but, we, but, but then it comes into our minds, but what would they think? What would be the implications? And here's what happens with real faith. Even if the whole world is against you, real faith says, I don't care, I want Jesus. It's desperate for Jesus, despite the opposition of the crowd. I appreciated what uh, Pastor Alistair Begg said on this point. I'll read you this quote from him. He says, you will never know Jesus Christ as a reality in your life until you know him as a necessity. That's worth saying again. You will never know Jesus Christ as a reality in your life until you know him as a necessity. You never call out for a savior until you know you have sin from which you need to be saved. You'll never call out to ask to see until you're made aware of your blindness. And we by nature are so blind that we cannot see how blind we are until God makes it possible for us to see that we're blind. 
then, when we see that we're blind, then we call for the sight we long for. But until then, and what he means is until you see Jesus as a necessity. Until then, it would just be a matter of, hey, I've got a marginal interest in who Jesus is. I heard he was passing by and so on. No, not for this man and not for a moment. He shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you get the point? Number one, faith sees who Jesus is, your need, and how only Jesus can meet it. Number two, faith is desperate for Jesus despite the opposition of the crowd. Do you have faith in Jesus? Number three, we see number three in verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling to you. So imagine this moment. Huge crowd of people following Jesus to Jerusalem. You're the blind beggar. Who is it? It's Jesus. And you start yelling and yelling and yelling. And now the crowd's like, shut up. And you're blind. You can't even stop the crowd from doing to you whatever they want. But you keep yelling. You don't care. You're yelling. And then, and then finally, Jesus stops the whole thing. The whole crowd stops. He stops and says, call him to me. I love how Jesus didn't just uh, walk by and wave and be like, be healed and keep trucking. He could have done that. He stops the whole show, call him. And the way I like to imagine this, I don't know if it's true. I wonder if the same people who are telling the man they that he had to shut up were now the ones who had to say, oh, um, he's calling you. I hope it was like that. <laughs> shut up. Oh, um, he's calling you. Now imagine being that blind beggar and hearing this. Nobody pays attention to you except for to treat you like garbage. Nobody wants you there. Some of us, we feel like that. We feel like maybe that's God's attitude towards us. I'm a nobody. I've messed it up too many times. I've got nothing to offer. I'm no big deal. And you think, could God really have any space for someone like me? And Jesus stops the whole train and makes everybody wait while he brings the blind beggar in front of him. Amazing. Amazing. Imagine hearing this if you're that beggar. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. Me? He listened to me? He heard me? This is what happens actually when we become Christians, isn't it? Some of you remember. You didn't care about Jesus most of your life. And then something really changed and you realize looking back, he called me to him. And it blows you away that he would seek you down like that. And want you to belong to him. And when Jesus calls us personally like that, we can't resist, can we? We're coming. And look what this blind beggar does. Verse 50. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Don't you love that picture? He's, he's sitting there yelling. Uh, he called you, come. And he's just like sprinting to Jesus. Why does Mark mention that he left his cloak? You could read that and be like, 
Who cares? I mean, right? The Gospels are selective. You know what I mean by that? Obviously, you know, if we were to ask any two people in here about today's, this morning, how was church? Uh, tell me about it. And you told one story, the other person would tell another story. Like, you obviously can't cover every conceivable detail of what happened. And nobody want, would want to listen to you anyway, right? Um, and, so, and some of you would point out different details that stuck out to you. So when, when a gospel writer points out a detail, that's interesting. We should pay attention. Why did you pick this detail as opposed to all these other details you could have mentioned? Why does Mark mention he threw off his cloak and sprang up and came to Jesus? Well, in the ancient world, your cloak was quite valuable to you. You and I, we have so many cloaks, we have to take some to goodwill, right? In the ancient world, your cloak was quite valuable to you. It could be an identifier. Um, It's the only thing to keep you warm at night. And and for a blind beggar, this might be the most expensive and most important thing he owns. And then you think of the context of this chapter. Remember the rich young ruler again? Jesus invited him to come and follow him. Sell all you have and follow me. What, what did the rich young ruler do? He couldn't, he couldn't do it. He went away undone because he loved his possessions over Jesus. He couldn't, he couldn't leave it behind. Do you see how this blind beggar is different? He leaves all that he has behind and springs up to follow Jesus. You could call this just a joyful, reckless, abandoned Abandon. I'm getting to Jesus. Hey, you forgot your cloak. Whatever. I'm getting to Jesus. You heard Jesus call now. Jesus is his life, and he's not going to let anything get in the way of it. Maybe he gets his cloak back. Maybe he won't. He's not worried about it right now. The point is, right, Jesus is his new treasure and his priority, and it now outclasses all other treasures and priorities. He's the treasure. He's the priority. He's number one, he's everything to me, whatever he wants. That's why I say the third aspect of faith here is it responds to Jesus' call with abandon. With abandon. If Jesus asked you, you would leave it all behind because he's everything to you. And now whatever you have, you use it and enjoy it for his sake and his glory according to his word. It's for him, all of it. That's what true faith does in response to Jesus. That's what we've seen so far. Faith sees who Jesus is, your need, and how only he can meet it. Faith is desperate for Jesus despite the opposition of the crowd. Faith responds to Jesus' call with abandon. Number four, see this in verse 51. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Again, I just love how Jesus gives this man dignity, interacts with him, doesn't just heal him along the way. He makes space. He says, let's talk. Let's know one another. Ask him a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, for some of you, that question ought to sound familiar. Where did we just hear that question? What do you want me to do for you? If you were here last week, Jesus asked the same question to his disciples. Do you remember what they asked for? In their pride, they asked him for seats of power. He tells them about the cross, they asked for power. And Jesus had to sit them all down and teach them that greatness is to serve. 
And now we see Jesus serving this man. But contrast how this blind beggar responds to Jesus' question so differently than the disciples did. The disciples started with, hey, Jesus, do whatever we ask you to do. Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Give us seats of power and comfort. Pride. But look at this beggar's response. Rabuni, let me recover my sight. My Lord and my master, let me recover my sight. Notice he didn't say, hey, if you let me recover my sight, then I'll follow you as my Lord. That's not what he said. You are my Lord right now. I'm already devoted to you. But I sure would like it if you could give me my sight. Do you see how he asked humbly? He's not cutting deals. He, he, his heart always, already says, Jesus, I exist for you, not you for me. But since you're so merciful, since you're asking, can I see? Here's Jesus' response, verse 52. Go your way, your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight. Again, can you imagine this moment? The Gospels are so understated. What do you think the crowd did? As the blind beggar, who has, is hopeless, cannot see, now he sees everything with perfect clarity. It would have been, it would have been chaos. It would have been an eruption. It would have been incredible. He sees. What does it show you about who Jesus is? He's the Christ, the Son of God. What does it show you about faith? What it shows you is faith connects you to Jesus and his power to save. Faith connects you to Jesus and his power to save. Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. It's as if he said, your trust in me has connected you to me and my power to save. So what do you think? Is this a promise that if you just trust Jesus, all your sickness will go away immediately? No. Uh, Mark wants to show his audience far more than that. And, and the word Jesus uses for made you well, it's sozo, which means it's talking about salvation. Your faith has actually saved you. It saved you. You're mine. Hey, can Jesus heal people when we pray for them? Yes, not denying that at all. If you're sick, let's pray. He heals many times. Are you still going to get sick and die one day? I'm not a prophet, but yes. But this means far more than that. Faith connects you to Jesus and his power to save. Connects you to Jesus, actually unifies you to Jesus, which means when you put your faith... In him, his cross was for you. He died for your sins. Makes it personal. His life was for you. He obeyed so that you could be seen as righteous before a holy God. He rose for you and has given his Holy Spirit to you. And when you die, he will meet you 
and take you to himself. And when he returns, he will resurrect you and you will live on the new earth. Faith connects you to Jesus and his power to save. And more than that, I've been trying to save it intentionally this entire time. By faith, you have a new identity as a child of God. Did you know? I think this is right. This is the only miracle where you know the name of the person healed. Remember the rich young ruler? He was a big deal in his time and place. Everybody knew his name. We don't. He denied Jesus. You know whose name we know in this chapter? His name is Bartimaeus. Why is his name mentioned? Well, many think because his name is known to the church. The people hearing this gospel originally, they're like, I know who that is. I've heard his name. He's in the kingdom, he's in the family. The person who was an outsider on the side of the road. No value, no identity, no worth. He's now known forever to all of God's people who read the Bible. He has a name. Because faith has connected him to Jesus. He's a child of God. Isn't it just a delightful thing to think Jesus knows your name? Calls you by name. He saved you personally. You can know that through faith. Last one. Faith follows Jesus from cross to crown. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It's amazing. The man can see and the first thing he sees is Jesus. And Jesus seems to say, you can go your way. You don't have to sit here and beg anymore. And where does, ba- where does Bartimaeus want to go? Jesus, I want to go where you're going. I want to be with you. I want to follow you. Even Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to get killed? Yeah, even to Jerusalem, I'll follow you. Faith follows Jesus from cross to crown. You remember Mark 8, 34? Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. You're no longer your goal. You're no longer your own king. You're no longer autonomous. You no longer live for your pride. All that dies. You want to follow Jesus. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. And when you have faith, your heart says, well, that sounds hard, and it is, but your heart also says, it's worth it. It's worth it. To, to be with Jesus, even in a hard place, is better than to not have it Jesus at all. It's worth it. And you also know that when you follow Jesus, you go where he goes, and he went to the cross, but after the cross, he rose from the dead, and now he wears the crown. 
And he'll follow that. Whatever cross he brings, dying to sin, dying in love, dying in persecution, the hatred of the crowd, whatever, whatever suffering we do with and for Jesus, there's always a resurrection in that. And in the end, ultimately, even when death takes us down, hey, we live forever. And when he comes back, we will rise from the dead. But do you see? Here he is. The portrait of discipleship, a picture of legit faith. He follows Jesus from cross to crown. So in conclusion, I'll ask again. What does this passage have to do with you and me? At first glance, Jesus healed a beggar on the side of the road. Doesn't seem to have anything to do with this. Oh no, it has, it has everything to do with us. Because this is a picture of what saving faith looks like. So I hope you can see this. Jesus did miracles. But I, what I love about this passage in this moment is Jesus is still doing miracles today. Because the greatest miracle Jesus does, and the one he's still doing, is to give genuine faith to blind beggars. And then we think, you know what? Here we are. That's us together. Blind beggars. I couldn't see and I had nothing. But Jesus opened my eyes. He gave me everything. And we together as a local church, like that's our song. That's our motto. That's our heartbeat. We were blind beggars. Jesus gave us sight. He's given us a name all through faith. Faith sees who Jesus is, your need, and that only he can meet it. Faith is desperate for Jesus despite the opposition of the crowd. Faith responds to Jesus' call with abandon. Faith connects us to Jesus and his saving power. And faith follows Jesus because we know he knows our names. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us faith. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who are so self-righteous we can't stand you. We don't want to be like the rich young ruler who is drawn to you but leaves for other things. We want to be like Bartimaeus, humble, seeing who you are according to the scriptures, seeing our need and just being desperate for you and then rejoicing in the reality that you've called us to yourself. We are yours. We know our name. Lord, I pray for all of God's people who are hearing this today, you'd encourage us and fire up real and true faith that we would see you afresh and love you all the more and desire to follow you. And Lord, if there's anyone listening who, before hearing these words, was not a Christian, did not have faith in you, was not following you, that you, by your Holy Spirit, you would take these words and open their eyes, just like you did for Bartimaeus, that they could see Jesus, their need for him, and follow him, trust him even, even today, even this moment. Do this, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.